Hello, this is Andy Muschietti, director of It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2, and this is the commentary epic notes on an epic film, Deadlights. You heard of those. So this shot was not scripted. It's something that I it was a reminder of what Beverly went through in the first movie. I knew that I would use it somewhere in the movie. I decided to use it at the beginning. They're seeing the same. We needed some context for Beverly's realization, for Beverly's epiphany that she has in the townhouse later. And this was a scene that when I shot it first in the first movie, it was cut off. There were like bits and pieces that were cut off, but I put everything in it on this version. So we see, we hear Beverly talking about what she saw in the deadlights. For me, it was about like, you know, sort of like throwing the ball forward. When I shot the chapter one, I really didn't know how I was going to use that, but I knew that I needed an open window there to generate some plot, and it really paid off. If it isn't dead, if it ever comes back, we'll come back too. Memory. It's a funny thing. People want to the reintroduction of Derry, aerial shots. I wanted to show Derry under, you know, haunting places, uh, deprived of people, make them feel like frozen in time and timeless. Places that we've seen before, they will play later in this movie. Camera moving forward all the time as my way of like, you know, inviting the audience into this journey into darkness. We are what we wish we could forget. transition and I love darkness through fair. So we build this fair in, in the parking lot with the help of Paul Osterberry, Nigel Churcher, production designer and art director, and Shane View, set decorator. They created this fantastic fair. Okay, kids, get ready, go! Xavier Dolan, incredible actor, filmmaker, wanted him to play Adrian Mellon. We have known each other socially, and uh, he was a big fan of the movie, and he said, you think there's a role for me in your movie? Because he was such a big fan. So I said, yeah, I think I do. Thanks for letting me win. <laughs> that stuffed doll, a little bit of an Easter egg. If any of you saw Mama, my first movie, you'll notice that one of the girls is holding that same stuffed doll. Beaver, but um, look at his hat. I mean, Taylor Frey, amazing actor. And this is Katie Lundman. For those of you who watched Chapter One, Katie plays Betty Ripson in Chapter One. In this movie, she plays a boy, Chris Unwin, that little shit that is spinning on her on her foot. Mama's ever teach you boys to respond to someone when they ask you a fucking question? Come on, Adrian. You got a problem, faggot? Jake Weary, amazing. I don't. This was a comeback that was amazing, that was uh, came on the day between uh, Xavier and Taylor. Come on, Adrian. Stuff like that. That's why I have to leave this shithole town. Small minds. No, small dicks. I'm being serious. 
Checo Arese, great ally and friend. You can see this bridge on the opening shot. We see how the, you know, the location on the back fits perfectly in the background. So I needed a bridge for the infamous scene of Adrian, but I wanted to see the fair on the back. So we got this uh, empty parking lot and we built the thing on the back so it would stay in the back forever. Why leave it there? Anything else you'd like me to take off for you tonight? Any special requests, ladies? Rough scene, uh, hate crime. I was uh, depicted originally in the novel, Stephen King's book, based on a real-life murder. Charlie Howard was murdered in 1984 by these three uh, fuckers that ended up in jail. It wasn't an easy scene to shoot, obviously. <laughs> Notice that Stephen King in his book is, you know, of course, telling a story about kids confronting an interdimensional demon, but also he's telling a story about the evils of real life. And this was a very important event in his story, and I wanted to include it in in our movie, given that his horrible behaviors are still relevant to our society and our reality. Hey, let me get him up. Adrian, let me get this fucking punk up right now. Give me the hat, Chris. It's fucking mine. Chris, give me the fucking hat. Adrian! Welcome to Dairy, motherfucker. It wasn't an easy scene to shoot, apart from the content and the darkness of what's going on. Technically, it was pretty difficult. You know, we're shooting at night, tight on time. We had to run for it. Water, of course. Shavier brought a lot of realism to it. Somebody's fucking helping! And here's Benny Wise. Adrian. It was stinky. I remember these days. It was the salmon season in Port Hope, and it's the time of the year where salmon swim upstream, and then they, they die, and then they come back, and everything stinks. Like this moment. For me, it was important that this attack was brutal. It sets the tone of the monster, sets the tone of evil that I want people to be afraid of during the course of the movie, even when Pennywise is not on screen. Thing is, sometimes what we wish was forgotten, what we tried to leave in the past, won't stay there. Reintroduction of Mike Hanlon. Uh, this is where we depart a little bit from the book. Uh, Mike Hanlon in the book doesn't live in the library. We thought it was a good idea to make him live there. And the work of the translating uh, such a big, huge novel into who you have to condense certain things and interlace and summarize. And this was one of the ideas. And it paid really well. You can see but the environment that he's, you know, just a guy that has been obsessed with one idea and he's been doing a lot of research. Uh -huh. 
Isaiah, Mustafa, incredible actor. It took me a while to find a right actor to play Mike Hanlon. I finally found him. I knew him only from the Old Spice commercials, believe it or not. But I wanted to try him. I wanted to see what he was uh, capable of. So first thing that struck me was uh, his physical resemblance with Joseph Jacobs. So that's why I brought him in. Jermail did this uh, amazing intro card. It's very scary. And it has all the reminders of, of the lights of the fair. Bill Dembro, played by incredible James McAvoy. Tons of Mark on the book, in his own book, an empty screen. A little funny fact, this was my trailer, actually. I had to empty it so we could shoot the scene. Laura Thorne, that girl that you see there, is a stand-in that I worked with for 10 years. All my movies I did with her and I gave her a little role there. You see the scene is like full of obstacles and things that attack James. I wanted to do something in a very aggressive environment and then you learn why. Sarah Craig McEthran and Ryan Reed where actual uh, head of makeup and hair in the movie are there. You can see them. And Peter Bogdanovich, one of my film heroes of all time, uh, managed to get him in the movie. And he plays this uh, director. You see how he comes from the heavens. I thought it was funny to bring him down from above <laughs> and deliver. It was great. He was such a funny guy and smart. And he knows everything about films. I'm a huge fan of Paper Moon, and that's how we met in the first place. Yeah. Andre, you have my notes. Did you? Okay, thank you very much. Take me back to one, please. Uh, you have his notes? He's not wrong. You hate my endings, too? Not all your endings, but this... Okay. Just... By the way, it says Warner Brothers, but it's not. We had to shoot it in Toronto and put a big sign that says Warner Brothers because shooting in Los Angeles was prohibitive. Jess Wexler, amazing actress. She's full of blood on this one, but she didn't like it that much. But I love her performance. I think what Peter wants, no, what the studio wants. The studio? When did you become a company man? Jesus, you're an artist. Come on, what's wrong with you doing? Also, half of the crew is on the scene. If you look closely, you can see Shane Scott, script supervisor, and Rico and, and whatnot, Rico the grip. So this is uh, interesting. We see Bill Dembro like, asking her to be the woman he wants her to be, which is the first indication of Bill's fixation with the past and that he actually married a woman that would look like Beverly. Sort of a sign that he's struggling with the past. And with the endings, if you see all the conversation about the endings, Oh, you, we need an ending, you don't have it. Bill Denbrook can't find closure to his past, and that's why it's illustrated in the movie like this. Eddie, I keep telling you not to scare me like this, and you never right, listen Myra, to me. please, not now. PJ Ranson, who plays uh, Eddie Kasparak, incredible actor that I found. Molly Atkinson. <laughs> For those who watch chapter one, you will realize that Eddie's wife is actually played by the same actress that played Eddie's mom in chapter one. I thought well, that would be appropriate. Great day in the streets of Toronto at Stanford, New York. 
did an incredible, incredible sequence with cars and stuff, coordinated by Jamie Jones and his amazing driving crew. Hey, bye. I love you like you usually do. Listen to me. I can't. I'm going to be late to this meeting. Say I love you, Eddie. Okay. I love you, Mommy. What? Myra. Bye. Hello? Who's this? It's me, Mike. Mike who? Boing. That was very precise. Uh, Richie Tozier played by the amazing Bill Hader. Amazing vomiting stunt. You see how the camera like creeps up to the scene? I wanted to keep it dynamic and link all of these uh, reintroductions with dynamism and, and speed. Fine. You're fine? Okay. And we're walking. We're walking. 60 seconds. Even faster. All right. You know, a bottle of water. Maybe. Bourbon. Bourbon. Sure, sure. All right. And a mint. It is showtime. I don't think I can do that. Great walking shot. That was fast. Yeah, that was a little bit of a joke there. That's Jason Fuchs in the scene. He's a co-producer in the movie. He helped us a lot. Uh, this was shot at the Allegheny Theater in Toronto. Great spot. Please welcome. All right, how are we doing tonight? The opening joke was actually Bill's idea on the Facebook page. I think it's hilarious. And also, you know, it has a lot to do with who he is, with that persona that he builds around. Later we'll notice that it's all a lie. He doesn't have a girlfriend, of course. Trash mouth. Uh, I got the joke. You suck. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for letting us present. The guy that is speaking here, his name is Brandon Crane, and if you saw, of course you saw it, the miniseries of 1990, you will realize that he is the actor who plays young Ben. He's the kid. It was scripted as, you know, a little, like, trick to throw people into thinking that that is our Ben, but he's not. At this point, like, probably a big part of the audience knows who's playing what. But for the ones who don't, there's a little Easter egg and a little trick. Look, throw up more walls, it's gonna feel like a prison. You know what people want to do in prison? Get out, right? This should be... Jay Ryan, amazing actor. He's from New Zealand. You wouldn't notice by his incredible accent. A little hint to the past, where we see that of all the losers, he's probably the one that is more connected to the events of 1989. He keeps something in his wallet. He mentions the clubhouse. I'll talk about the clubhouse later. Little gag. He's not wearing anything. He's not wearing uh, the suit on the lower part. And this transition got the puzzle hole. You see Stanley. Played by Andy Bean. Little wink to people who read the book Birds. Stanley Uris as a kid, he's a bird watcher. He loves birds and he has all books and birds and everything. Uh, 
In this scene, we notice how Stanley is the only one who remembers it because he was more affected by it in the past. And ironically, he didn't suppress the memory of it as the rest of the losers did. Great performance by Andy Bean. Andy was concerned because it was, you know, you only had like one scene to nail it, and he really did. And also, like, you know, his physical resemblance to Wyatt Olive is really something. It's come back, hasn't it? That's why you're calling me. It's turning against him. Bad things are happening. Yeah, you, did you call the others? I mean, what if, what if they don't come? I mean, we made a promise, remember? How soon can you get here? Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I would need to do a, a few things. I would... Tomorrow. We don't have much time. This moment is amazing, where he makes the decision of what he's going to do, you know, in just like three seconds, and you can tell that something is very wrong, and he's trying to hide it. See how everything is folded, very tidy. We realize that, you know, even in his last moments, <laughs> Stanley's OCD. There he digs into the memory. I reshot all of this, you know, this is basically re-watching the scene of the blood oath, but through the eyes of the kids, through the eyes of Stanley. That's why it's a POV and you see uh, Jaden watching right into the camera. Just be closer to the character's feelings. And that straight cut from one face to the other in this weird, poetic, if you will, way of seeing the cut, the suicide, is by showing the actual blood oath that they did and how the piece of glass cuts into the hand. There's a bit of a placid gesture there, and we will know at the end of the movie why. We'll have a little more of an explanation to why. Transition of blood. Where are we going? Oh, we're with Jessica Chastain, Beverly, Beverly Marsh. If you saw the other movies, you'll see that, you know, there's a recurrent portrayal of Beverly in that same position. We see Bill drawing her in the profile the water leaking from the ceiling falls and makes these like red blood stains and then at the end of chapter one we see Sophia Lillis like lying on her side in the same way with drops of blood falling on her face and this is the same a little bit of a connection no one else either. Jessica Chastain amazing Bill Bill you have to come back you all do how she grabs the sneakers. Little jump scare here. Just a little one. Boink. Will Byrink. Great actor. It's middle of the night. You're packing. I didn't want to wake you, honey. I know this week's been really exhausting. I just got a phone call from an old friend from Barry. I have to go back there. Really hard to Very everyday scene here, 
or at least that's what it looks like. Probably very faithful to how the book describes the scene. And this is where we basically realize what Beverly's journey has been, her life as an adult. We see that she is living with a man that abuses her and we sort of understand her pattern and her trauma. Even though her father abused her as a kid, strangely enough, she loved him and she just relapsed and went on in this cycle. And at this point of her life, she's married to a man that abuses her and probably loves her. Bev, you're not going anywhere, okay? I want you to stay right here and you're gonna show me what it is you're gonna do with Mike. Very brutal scene, not easy to shoot. You have to be in a very specific state of mind as an actor to shoot this. You have to reach, you know, depths and darkness that are not easy to cope with. And this was the only day two or three of shooting. Tiny victory here. Barely smashing his face and just running away. This is where we depart from the story. Also, in the boat, Tom Rogan goes back to Derry to get her, but it was too much convolution for us in this movie. Lovely shot. Day one. Day one of shoot. It was a mess. And that wasn't warm. I love this transition too. You know, this is how we go into the past. Is it 2016 or 1989? We don't know. Spying. This is a shot that I did, that we made for chapter one, for the end of chapter one, and we decided to hold it. And while we were writing the script of chapter two, it came in very handy to start telling the story of Henry Bowers. Uh, remember we last saw him like falling into a well and now we realize that he's alive and stressed. Nicholas Hamilton, incredible, incredible actor. He's going back home. Ray Crone, amazing character actor from Toronto. Boys! Those pricks got balls, I'll give them that. It's far enough, Bowers! Not done yet. And then this scene, we sort of intro the idea that Henry Bowers is not dead and that he will come back. Henry Bowers, I am placing you under arrest for the murder of yeah. Oscar Bowers. Do you understand, dipshit? You have the right to an What are you looking at? You have the right to remain silent. Red balloon. And this is one of my favorite transitions in the movie. You know, this is what I really <laughs> live for. It's great to tell a story that takes place in two different timelines because you can like, really play with film language and do stuff like this. It's, it's really fun. And when you notice it works, it's really great. Teach Grant.
I'm not gonna say anything about his performance because, as you can see, he's like terrific. We shot this in actually in an abandoned hospital near Toronto. And we have like freedom to go everywhere and every room, and that was great. Thank you, Randy Morgan, by the way, location manager. Someone needs a little extra clozapine today, huh? Stay in your fucking room. I love his performance. Look, he looks, <laughs> looks like a child. So great. In the back, we can see moons that he draw. That is a little wink to people who read the book and know that uh, Henry Barris has been talking to the moon for a long time. This is how it speaks to him through the moon. He's not in good shape. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie. All this tension that is a little funny also. You can hear the nervous laughter when you see him in an audience and he's like, you know, struggling with the balloon like an idiot. Patrick Hockstetter played by Owen Teague. Amazing actor. Hockstetter. Check the prosthetics by, by Sean Samsung and his team. Amazing. My knife. And the scene of the Jade of the Orient, where all the losers finally get together. Great job at the music department. Kim Baum found this, uh, and Lisa Richardson, they find this beautiful, cheesy Chinese music. I love. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I, I, I didn't know if any of you would trip me after all this yeah. time, but of course you can. Yeah. I know if there's a nose. Losers gotta stick together, right? Losers? You remember that. That's good. This was a shot in a place called the Mandarin, which actually is a great, amazing place to shoot because it's gigantic. And it's a Chinese restaurant, actually. And we they were kind enough to let us shoot there. It was everything that I dreamed of. I mean, we, of course, decorated and, and made it look a little more stylized in a main banger kind of way. Is there a password or something? I'm sorry. The new kid. The new kid. Ben? Yeah, Ben. Look how handsome he is. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's been so long. <laughs> and there you have a little bit of magic. One of the, my favorite moments from chapter one, the reminder of who these guys are and the magic of the moment. Uh, there's a hint of Ben Wolfish kind of more Amblin-esque music cues that he did for this one. There's a little more magic in a John Williams way whenever we cut to the memories. So something that we talked about and really paid off. Officially begun. Oh, look at these guys. So wait, Eddie, you got married? Yo, why is it so fucking funny? This is one of my favorite scenes. 
not only watching it on the movie, but also like on the day I had the confirmation that this group actually had chemistry on camera and they they were really, really bonding and they could recreate this illusion that they are actually people that have known each other for a long time, even though they were apart for a long time. But see how they catch up, you know, and, and basically recognize each other and remember uh, the things that were part of their lives when they were kids. Big bad person. Oh, no. Hilarious. No. Hysterical. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice watch. Wait, let's talk about the elephant not in the room. Ben, what the fuck, man? Okay, okay, obviously I lost a few pounds. Lost yeah, no shit you lost. You're like, uh, you're hot. That's true. Like subtle looks, you see how Jessica and Jay have that little something. You're embarrassing her. Okay, okay, all right, please, come on. Is Stanley coming or what? Someone save me. Also, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it wasn't an easy scene to shoot. It's a complex scene in terms of emotions and structure. These characters go through so much shit. There's like a whole palette of emotions and revelations and whatnot. So it wasn't easy to shoot. I think we spent like four days in this restaurant, but it was so rewarding. No, uh, I ended up becoming a risk analyst. Oh, that sounds really interesting. What, what does that entail? Yeah, so I worked for like a big insurance firm and... Uh... And the humor, of course, you know, comes from Bill Hader and, and B.J. Ransone. is one of the great highlights of the scene. And in my opinion, it's, you know, it helps you as an audience connect faster emotionally with these characters. I propose a toast. Uh -huh. To the losers. This montage, which is like the tiniest montage in the world, Bill Hader quotes this as the moment where I ask him to dance like Patrick Swayze. And apparently I say Swayze instead of Swayze. And he finds it very funny. He makes people laugh with this so much. With my horrible English accent, apparently. But he speaks like Tony Montana when he does an impression of me. And as you can say, I, I'm struggling with English, but I don't sound like Al Pacino at all. Yeah, it did. I'm sorry. It's all right. No, I don't want to take you, No, I don't in your head. It's not in my head. What? This is just weird. I think you read shit on the internet. All this, all these memories, people. I don't you see how uh, there's a change of mood in the scene now it becomes from joy it becomes a little more intimate separate conversations you see how Ben has been like sort of uh, overhearing what Bill and Bev are talking about just sort of starting to imply that there was always a love triangle there yeah, like sick and I threw up <laughs> but I feel fine now I feel very relieved to be here with you guys why is everybody looking at me like this when Mike called me I crashed my car so when it turns a little darker, like the atmosphere, you can see Mike's face there is not so cheery anymore because he knows that he's basically monitoring how everyone is remembering the things that they don't. He sort of did a great job by summoning everyone, basically conjuring the blood oath that they did as a reason for them to come back. But there's something that they don't remember. And here's where he has to tell them. I never left. So yeah. I remember. I remember all of it. 
Pennywise. Yeah, exactly. The fucking clown. And you can see in the soundtrack, like this, like very subtle, like bend into darkness that Ben Wallfish does. And the leitmotif of Pennywise, we can hear in the back. Well, we thought it was done, but. Mike. A week ago. Very soon you're gonna notice that. The visual language starts to change a little bit. We've been like dealing a lot with group shots and everything, and we're gonna soon start to isolate the characters with wider angles like this. You see? And so that's, this is a wider angle. So everything becomes a little more expressionist. Look at Jay. He's alone. So there's a little bit of change of language there, which is almost subliminal. But I wanted to, especially because we're talking about like a very long scene, and in order to, you know, to support with visual language what's going on, uh, and also not to bore people to death with the same setups over and over. I don't know how to do fortune cookies here, mine just says guess. You want to throw that over here? You got my. This is a little departure from the book, also this message in the fortune cookies is not there in the book. We just figured out that it would be a cool turn of the screw of tension before hell breaks loose. And I love this escalation, you know, everyone talking on top of themselves, the other, everybody's dealing with their own, like, you know, fucked up memories and, and uncertainty and fear. And they just escalate until they realize that single tear Jessica has something to show. Jessica is amazing. She has control of her tears, is amazing. All these paper shots were second unit because there's no actors involved, so shout out to Will Waring who did this amazing job. He did very little things and then wider, like bigger things like aerial shots and transition shots that are just amazing. Oh shit. Who the fuck is that, man? Exactly. These fucked up creatures that come out of the cookies. I took some liberties compared to the book of what creatures that come out. That bug that has a baby face was total like creation. I wanted to sort of address in a way the baby issue. None of the losers have babies in their adult lives, so I wanted to address that. The eye is part of the book, but also in this version where like basically Richie's fear is to be exposed and he's so afraid of the look of others regarding his real identity or sexual identity, the eye was very appropriate.
heads floating. Chromatic license. And boink. That's brutal. And in the midst of this tragedy, Is everything all right? a joke. Yeah. Yeah, can we get the check? The scene was added the very last minute. We introduced Dean, that little kid. So we played as a, you know, as a confusion there. But it's something that we added to make later pay off because that kid that Richie thinks is Pennywise right there is actually the kid that lives in Bill Denver's house. And when we started thinking about, you know, aggravating the plot of Bill Denver and his guilt trip, we thought of using this character as a, you know, the bait. For Pennywise. Fuck you, all right? Just be careful, dude. Fuck you! I'm not afraid of you! If I'm just beginning, the line from your act, dude. I'm a fan. Are those your parents? Yeah. You want a picture? Dean's dad, that guy over there, that, that is his dad, is actually Sean Storer. He's been a standing, been working together for like 10 years, too. So Rich, you don't remember the line from your own show? I don't write my own material. I fucking knew it! I fucking knew it! Hello. Uh, Mrs. Yours, my name's Beverly Marsh. I love the scene visually and dramatically. You know, there's so many things going on. We had only one night to shoot it, so we were running like crazy. But when you have actors like this and a crew like this, everything is easier, of course. He passed. When it happened? Yesterday. It was horrible the way he died. Everyone is there in their own world. You can see on the back of that shot of Beverly that the sky is not quite as black as in the rest of the scene, and that's because we were starting to be in daytime. That got us all very stressed, but we made it. But again, you know, the crew was fucking amazing that day. Checo Arese, my friend and ally, cinematographer, made sure that this would make it happen. Angelo Colavecchia. A camera operator, another longtime friend and ally. We did three movies together. Plus, I just remembered I grew up here like two hours ago, so I'm fucking leaving. Fuck this. Sorry, man. I, I'm, I'm with Richie. It's, please, listen. What? We stay? We die? That's it? I'm gonna go back to the end. I'm gonna pack up my shit drive to my home. I'm sorry, man. Good luck. Oh, Eddie, please. Please, Eddie. Eddie, wait! And this is a little departure from book two. All the losers go away, and Mike, as he sees all this happening, he has to convince Bill, as known as the loser's ex-leader, to stay. And he knows that if he can convince him, he can make the losers to stay. What can you possibly say that would make any kind of a difference? They're all gone. Well, let, let, me, let me show you something. One thing, and if you, if you want to leave, you, you can leave. Just let me show you this first, please. I love this shot. How everything is connected there. The ball, the kid shouting, screaming. You think he's going to be in the scene? No, he's not. Keep going and land in the girl at the fair. And here's Kelly Vanderberg, actually that was casted in the first movie, but because it was lifted, I wanted to have her back in the movie, and there she is, amazing actress. 
Of course, Brian Armstrong. Incredible actress. Incredible little actress, too. Acting to something that is not there. It was freezing that night. You can see her, how stiff she is, and she still, like, pulled it off. And here comes an interesting shot. As she's leaving, we see Pennywise on the right side of the frame. Many people don't notice, but I think it's a cool thing. Uh, some people notice and some people don't. It took care of the DI to put Pennywise in the right light. So it's not very obvious that he's there. But for people who discover it, it's a great moment because it's like you can hear half of the, of the movie theater going, ah, oh, and the other half like, what? I guess I must be your friend too. If you're my friend, why are you hiding in the dark? You're not my friend. Reintroduction of Pennywise. Bill Skarsgård, amazing, as usual. But with this little extra that he brings on the scene, in the scene we notice that it's a bit of a mirroring event of Georgie's encounter with Pennywise. But this time it's much more brutal because little Victoria is a character that is smarter than Georgie, if you will. And immediately when he sees him in the dark, he says, you're not my friend, I'm getting out of here. But Pennywise picks on her birthmark to manipulate her. So basically this is a portrait of Pennywise, of a much more manipulative and perverse and smarter Pennywise. It's pretty hard to watch the scene because you sort of know where he's going, you know, how the manipulation is working. And it's brutal. You could? Oh, yes. One poof, and it'll be gone. <laughs> oh, you would have to get close enough to see my face. I don't know, Vicky. No, it's okay. I won't make fun. I promise. Promise, promise. Well, okie dokie. Just come on in a little closer, and we'll blow it away on the count of three. <laughs> One. You can see the paint in his eyes like starting to grow in a point. You're supposed to say three. Oh, there we go. That's the irony of this crazy. Down. John Conan this is an actor that I worked with a long time ago in commercials and I like him so much that I, I asked him to play the, the guard. Grant, amazing actor and former skateboarder. I love this kind of shot where we discover, you know, layer by layer as the camera is moving and find this creepy thing. Horror and humor go hand in hand for me. I grew up in the 80s watching movies like Friday Night and American Werewolf in London, 
movies that meant a lot to me and for me it's not alien to combine the two things. In fact, the effect is magnified. Especially when it's not openly funny, you know? When there's like a little bit of twisted humor in a horrific event. when you're on the phone with Stanley's. And this is the townhouse shot near Toronto. Perfect environment and my idea of what the townhouse should look like by reading the book. And this is a bit of an intro of the event that will change things and basically spin the story into a different direction. In the book, the reason why the losers stay in town is a little bit loser. With the writer, we thought that we needed something a little more precise and tight. And this is where we reveal what that is. She doesn't want to say it. She resists to it because it's something too hard to comprehend and understand for her. She wishes it wasn't true. Because I saw him die. Okay, I just gotta grab my toilet tree bag. Let me go. And a little joke at the end, of course, as always. So this is a bit of a two-punch event, where on one hand we hint the reason why the losers will have to stay with Beverly, and on the other hand we have Mike telling Bill about his scheme, the ritual of Chud. The Ritual of Chud is something that I wanted to orchestrate in the first movie, but I didn't find a, a right reason to do it in the first one, and it landed perfectly on this one. Mike knows that after, you know, 27 years of doing research and investigation and stuff, he came to a dead end of how to kill Pennywise, and he goes back to the only thing that actually worked in his memory, which is the power of unified belief. And he knows that the only way to defeat Pennywise or to fight back is making all the losers believe in one single thing. That's why he brings the ritual of Chud, which is something that exists in mythology, but it didn't work. We don't know if it really happened. Memory's the thing. It's, uh, it's, it's the key. Well, it's, it's the key to everything. If it really does want us back here, don't you think the smartest thing we can do is just get the hell out of Derry? No, no, no. It, it, it does want us back. Well, of course it does. But it doesn't know I know what I know. What do you know? How to kill the shit out of it. If you remember uh, chapter one, when little Bill at the end of the movie shoots the gun and makes a hole in Pennywise's forehead, and all the kids are screaming, kill it, kill it, kill it. The only one who knows that that gun is not loaded is Mike. He's the only one who witnessed in the flesh the power of unified belief. He knows that there is no load in that gun. And 27 years later, he's doing the same thing by basically incepting a lie on Bill and in the rest of the group. 
because he knows that the only thing that will work as a weapon is that if they believe in a thing, not a thing in itself. They all believe in it. Yeah, it is. They helped me on my journey. So beautiful. They showed me things. A vision. <laughs> You're kind of funky. Am I sweating? I need you to see what they showed me, Bill. They live outside of Derry. Yeah, this is where we start messing with the camera. There's things like this. We're on a steady cam on a stand and we're like shaking it like crazy from one side to the other. And then we lock the face in the same position. This great cast that we did in Toronto, Native American actors. Peter Commanda, Kylie May, Kevin Allen, and Billy Morasti. It gets very trippy here, and we build a whirling stage. It goes very fast, but if you look closely, you'll see that the whole sweat lodge is spinning around Mike. Uh, it wasn't easy, but we pulled it off. Did you put something in my drink? That's a... Uh, it's a root. You you, dr you drugged me? No, no, you uh, drugged it's, me? It's a root with properties. It's just a microdose of what Chakopiwa gave me. Why would you do that? Very important uh, moment in the book for me is the vision that the kids have of it coming to Earth. A million years ago, we see like a comet like falling into Earth. I really wanted Mike to have this vision. And given that he's been like messing with psychoactive substances uh, in order to find the truth, I want him to see the origin of it on Earth. Even the, it was dormant for many, many years. And he started interacting with humans when humans showed up. It should be the pain. So I wanted to make this sequence very brutal, very visceral, and very, very, very experiential as seen from the eyes of Bill. That's why most of the scene we had like things coming to him. And with this crazy design creature that had the DNA of the of the leather of that Shakopiwa vase. I wanted to share materials and make it trippy. Ritual. The ritual of Jud. I knew what you see. I knew what you see. I saw the whole fucking thing. Wait, that's how we do it. How are we gonna do it? Everybody already said no. This was shot on stage. We built the whole clock tower because there was a lot of scenes there, so we opted uh, we build this whole environment on a set. I'm very happy with it. Okay, so what do you mean that you've seen us all die? Yeah, because I gotta be honest, that's a fucked up thing to just drop on somebody. Every night since Barry, I've... having these nightmares. People in pain, people dying, people. So you have nightmares, I have nightmares. People, have, they have nightmares, but that doesn't mean that your visions are true. Going back to the ritual of Chud and how it's orchestrated in the story, I really wanted to, to reintroduce it in the story, but with a new function. As I said before, the function is for Mike to harness all the losers behind a unified idea, a unified weapon.
on the other hand, we needed a, you know, as I said before, I needed a strong reason for the losers to stay in town because, you know, it's very dramatic how everyone says, I'm getting out of here. We don't need to be here. I'm going <laughs> to, like, staying here is dangerous. I'm going to die. So we needed a strong reason, and, and here's where the whole thing comes to the surface. So as I said before, I was, you know, when I had Beverly saying, I saw all of us in the future, in the cistern, and I saw things. I knew that I was like, you know, basically throwing the ball forward for later payoff, but I didn't know what it was. And this is the reason for it. It really paid off. We end up using that excuse for Beverly to, in the deadlights, acquire all these visions and power to envision the future, which is actually the reason why they all stay. If they stay, they will die. They will all suffer the same fate that Stanley uh, did. So this is how they stay. They have a saying, all living things must abide by the laws of the shape they inhabit. A tribal ritual? <laughs> are, you, are you fucking kidding me, man? All right, there's gotta be another way. Okay, this thing comes back, what, every 27 years? Let's kick the can down the road and do it then. Wait, will we 70 years old, asshole? Doesn't work that way. And of course, you need someone that, that is <laughs> questioning everything before the audience does, and that's Richie. So no questions are unanswered. You see how skeptical Richie is. And when you're dealing with this kind of plots, you always need someone that is as skeptical as the audience. I didn't say it, she said it, not me. All right, guys, look, I've seen what he's talking about, and it's, it's all true. It's the only way. If we want this ritual to work, we have to remember. Remember what? Introducing this idea, we basically rise the stakes in the story, make them stay, and if they don't fight, they die. I love this shot. This cycle will end soon. And once it does, we're fucked. Jason Ballantyne, my editor, called it the Beatles shot. I don't know why. <laughs> the actual Beatles shot comes a little later here. So if you know the cover of Abbey Road, you'll notice that Paul McCartney is barefoot, just like Eddie is there. Eddie, of all the losers, is the only one who wouldn't go barefoot in a place like this. And the only reason, the Easter egg in all of this is that people who held the idea that Paul McCartney was dead attributed it to the fact that he was barefoot. So it's a bit of an omen, a little like play there. I asked Eddie to remove his shoes because he's going to be dead. <laughs> what? Nothing. It's just you haven't changed. It's a good thing. Huh. <laughs> you know what? I actually think that... Ben Wallfish, especially in that moment where we discovered the place where the clubhouse was, he does a little magic there more than any, <laughs> any time before in the movie. And I love it. And this transition is phenomenal. Not because I didn't. I had help. But you can feel the magic, how immediately, like something that was a little more, you know, grounded turns into magic and you can't put a label to it. It's a little bit on the, on the lenses. Checo used a different set of lenses for the flashbacks. It's a set of hawks that sort of replicate the image of an anamorphic lens. And there's also a little bit of a smoothing of a glow in the DI. 
get some wood for the for the roof door and that's pretty much it. Pretty good for my first time, huh? Now that's a cool feature. What happens when you put your hand on the other pillar, Professor? Okay, you see, this is exactly why there are safety codes, why we have permits. This place is a death trap, you understand that? Well, it's a work in progress. Okay? Yes, the kids are de-aged. When we shot this movie, they were like 15, 16 in some cases, and we had to take them back to where they were. And Lola did a great job in it. Be careful with that place. I have one of these. Hey, Stan, you see this? Yeah, okay, can you, maybe not? Maybe not what? Yeah, yeah, hold on. Maybe not what? Maybe not what? Be us. I'm gonna have fun and celebrate the magic of the battle ball! Wow! The clubhouse was a very important place for me to include in the story. You know, it's the place where the losers bonded as friends, and I couldn't put it in chapter one, so it came back as a memory in chapter two. I think it's great. It's also like the perfect place to start in Mike's plan, to have them all go back to this place and basically appeal to their collective <laughs> memory as an emotional starting point. I thought it was a, a great place. And shooting all those scenes was really cool, especially when we shot the kids. It was one of the two scenes where they are all together, and it was great from an experience point of view. We were all together again. We haven't been together all in the same space for like two years, and it was very exciting for everyone to come back as a group and shoot together. And the kids were there and their parents and the family, so it was like a big fun moment. It was like reliving the awesome experience we all had in 2016. This, this, for the use of lo losers only. Bill. What the fuck is this? So you don't get spiders stuck in your hair when you're down here. Stanley, we're not afraid of fucking spiders. I stand corrected. <laughs> That's a first. Touche. Hey, Richie, your 10 minutes are up. What are you talking about? The hammock, 10 minutes each was... And Richie's holding a core zone issue from 1989, if I'm not wrong, which means a lot because I used to have that same issue. So it's a little Easter egg there. Easter egg for myself. You're awfully good at this new kid. There's a lot of things that I like about this scene. Uh, apart from the humor, there is like, you know, that little line from Mike when he says, I'm gonna go to Florida. And, you know, it's a little bittersweet because we know how Mike ended up. He's the only one who stayed in town. So it's a little bit of a juxtaposition of the expectations and reality that brings some depth to this group's uh, drama. And also, you know, seeing them so innocent, talking about the future, and then realizing that, yes, they are all very successful individually in their professions, but they are all broken and damaged people and have to deal with trauma from their childhood. They're friends from middle school. I mean, things might be different then. We all might be different. We'll always still be friends. I don't, I don't think that just... Goes away because we get older. Yeah, Stan, come on. You don't have to be so sad. 
This is a very technical note, but we're talking about designing the clubhouse with, with Paul Osterberry and Nigel Churcher. I asked them specifically to build it over seven foot high so I could actually stand <laughs> in it without dodging all the time. Isaiah Mustafa is barely my height. I'm a couple taller or something, and you can see how tight he fits there. So yeah, they built a set seven foot, but they didn't consider that all the beams. So I knocked my head on those beams a lot of times, but with a smile on my face all the time. The past is buried, but you're gonna have to dig it up, piece by piece. And these pieces, these artifacts, that's why we're here. They are what you'll sacrifice. And since Stan isn't here to find his, I figured we should all be here together to find his artifact. I think Bill just did that. Okay, Mike, so where do we find our tokens? Yeah, I gotta be honest, man, I'll do respect. This is fucking stupid, all right? Why do we need tokens, all right? We already remember everything. Uh, saving Bev, defeating it, I mean, we're caught up. It's not everything. We fought, but what happened after that? Before the house on Nibalt? Think. We, we can't remember, can we? See, there's more to our story. What happened that summer? Mike's scheme keeps developing. Now he's making sure that he, that the losers realize that there's a, an open hole in their story trying to validate the idea of the ritual and basically harnessing into belief that's the only weapon that they have. If they remember, they will believe, which is the same thing that Pennywise wants from me, but with different outcomes. Not that whole, whole summer. Take it back! This is a scene that we shot in 2016, and we're reprising it because it was very, very relevant to the main plot. There's that moment where the, where the losers split up. And if you remember in the first movie, after the split up, there's a montage. We, we see them all separated. But the implication of that separation is not taken seriously, which is if we are separated, we're more vulnerable to evil. So we pick that up in the second one and dig deep into that section of the story, which is those two weeks after they fight and they get separated. And we really show each of the losers' memories of them as kids in that period is traumatic. And that's the origin of their childhood trauma that define who they are as adults now. transition there. We seamlessly go from the 80s to present day and everything changes in the background. We see cars. We see old cars and new cars. Yes? Sorry, I... Can I help you? Thought I rang Marsh. Marsh? 
Alvin Marsh? My father. I grew up here. This is the first of each loser's journey to the past. Joan Gregson, who plays Miss Kirsch, amazing actress. She came to a casting and she totally blew my mind. Oh, I'm so sorry you didn't know. We haven't been spoken in a while. Well, won't you come in? In the first movie, this was a, was a location. We had less money. There was a location and we, we were so miserable because it was all so tiny. And the second movie, we had the resources of building. Look at John. Oh, shit. So the editor tried to convince me not to use that shot because it was like anticipating too much <laughs> what was going to happen. And sometimes it's like you have to just go for it, you know. I was like, yeah, it's anticipating. So what? There's a lot of weird things going on here. <laughs> There's a probably excessive accumulation of weird indications that that is not just an innocent old lady, but what the hell. Joan was genius. The first flashback of a character, Beverly starts to remember what was the root, what was the inciting traumatic event that fucked them up. And for us, for the audience, this is something that we didn't know about this twisted, creepy uh, relationship, father-daughter. Beverly's father basically is replacing his wife with his daughter. It's fucking twisted, but that's how, with that amount of violence and control and domination, that's how Beverly learned to live and survive. In spite of everything, she basically walks to him and hugs him and says, will you always be my little girl? Always. So that's how fucked up her childhood is. And that's what she remembers. There's an understanding there of something that she's been suppressing for a long time. And this will come in perspective with the event of love that will happen with Ben. Her idea of love was distorted for her whole life, you know? And now she starts to understand that and she will be open to comprehend that love can be something good instead of harmful and painful. Cockroaches, I hate them, but I love to see them on film.
And there we see uh, Beverly recovering things from her past that we recognize, but we, we never thought that they were hidden there. It's one of those like little moments in the movie where they're you know very stimulating because it just shows you things that you didn't know. You see that fixed postcard, and at the end of the hallway, I love hallways. I love Joan Gregson. Look at what she did. It was funny. I made Joan do like several crazy things there in the back of the hallway, and we shot it in two layers because I didn't want Jessica to be there for like an hour and a half doing the performance in the foreground. So we shot it in two layers, and when Jessica's performance was done, I asked Joan to get on the back, and we tried like several different things. Say about Derry. No one who dies here ever really dies. This is an iconic moment. We've all seen this on the trailer, and it was so much fun doing this. This wasn't scripted at all. I just like love to play with uh, with Joan. She understood perfectly the kind of humor, twisted humor, and subtle, dark humor that we were doing, and weirdness. And she played along, and I was out of the camera, like just like screaming things like, "Okay, freeze and smile and freeze," and. There was also like other things that are not in the movie, but we played it with the tea. And the tea in the book is important because at one point there's like shit in the tea instead of like tea. I made her do like slurping sounds a lot. My father came to this country with $14 in his pocket. And he didn't ask for a handout the way the people come in here these days. You know what he did? What did he do, Mrs. Kirsch? My father joined the I love the build-up of this moment. You know, we just hear her voice in the back. Oh my god. Is she wearing any clothes? I don't think so. So this is very creepy. You know, people agree that it's very creepy. I try to build... Ah! <laughs> so... Yeah. So Joan agreed to, to make that scene uh, naked. Uh, of course, it was a closed set, so no, all the monitors were turned off, um, except for mine. Uh, and all this build-up, again, we hear just her voice, and... <laughs> horrifying creature, which is based on the witch of Hansel and Gretel, played by Javier Botet. Javier Botet, who is an old friend and ally. I made all the movies with him. He played Mama in Mama. He played a leper in chapter one, and he plays uh, several creatures in this one. You haven't changed anything yet. You haven't changed their futures. Bob Gray was the name of the guy who was Pennywise, and it's a character that is very cryptic in the book. Uh, I wanted to keep it cryptic in the movie too. Close your eyes, Beth. Fuck you! If you don't believe, close them and see. The scene played differently. It was creepy, and Bill was doing this amazing job. But I noticed there was like prop paints, and I asked him, uh, "Why don't you paint your face as you're playing the scene?" and go from Bob Gray to Pennywise. And the rest was him, 
you know he just like took it and he does the morphing he does the transforming from a creepy man to a fucking crazy clown and the thing with the hands also like came up on the day where he's like actually carving the smile with his own fingers Richie remembers. Come on, you, come on! Can you look bitch? Yes! You're fucking good. Oh, uh, well, I gotta go. Hey! Um. How about we go again? Play some more, you know? Only if you want to. Shut up. This is the traumatic event that spinned Richie into his behavior. You know, he basically is being himself. He's humiliated for being himself. Richie is gay, and this is like the first probably attempt to live in his skin. And he's immediately repressed and humiliated for it. Fucking move! We see how great that shot of Bill Hader like reacting to the memory, so dramatic. So Stephen King, when I asked him, you know, what would he like to see on the movie, he said Paul Banya. And that's a response to that. Oh. And I was happy when he said it because now I could put the scene and without reservations. It's amazing. So great job. Method was in charge of doing this monster. He did a great job. Great score, by the way, by Ben Wolfish on this one. He went for broke. All those horns and everything. I think I just shit my pants. And there he is, Bill Hader versus. Hold on, you. Festival. Closing performances tonight. Hope to see you there, handsome. Xavier Dolan again. That's weird. Obituary. This mirrors a little bit of the scene where young Richie finds his missing poster at the beginning. And I wanted to put Pennywise on the shoulder of Paul Banyan, and so we did it for real. So that's Bill Skarsgård on top of the 25 feet statue. So he was a real trooper this day. We spent the whole day shooting and he was on wires. Oh, oh maybe truth or dare. Oh, you wouldn't want anyone to pick truth though, would you, Richie? You wouldn't want anyone to know what you're hiding. This was an image that I always had in my mind. 
Pennywise against the sky, the flare of the sun. And you see how everything distorts here. This was a last minute idea of like changing the colors. I was on DI and I said, okay, so Pennywise starts chanting this thing and all the colors go to shit. And as Richie's trying to come back to his senses, the colors go back. And his face forms. This is a little thing that I have with Modigliani faces. You see how Pennywise turns into a weird Modigliani face. So on the day, McAvoy wanted to do that. Uh, he said, why don't the car almost hits me? I said, okay, let's do it. He's great. James is always like pushing it to the limit physically. It's a real trooper. Silver. I love this moment. If you see here in the score, it, it goes really ambling at that moment, you know? That's what, one of the things that we talked with Ben. And Mr. Stephen King. So I asked him to do a cameo in the movie, and his answer was, well, you have to consider that I'm a jinx. I jinxed all the movies that I'm in. And I said, no, this, I think we can turn that around. Uh, of course, he was joking. So this scene was very cool because it wasn't scripted like this. James wanted to stay closer to the book, so he brought up the idea that he actually pisses off the shopkeeper. And I said, okay, so you're going to piss him off with the stuttering, and the shopkeeper is going to repeat, <laughs> to try to, you know, complete the phrase with words that start with B. And Stephen King was so cool about it, and he immediately got the joke and started, like, scribbling on his notebook words that started with B of all the objects that could be on the thrift shop. On the longer cut of the scene, we have like 20 different things. So the scene goes on, on and on and on. <laughs> and he says, bird cage, bird, Bobby and Ken. It's so funny. You uh, want me to sign it for you? Nah, I didn't like the ending. Uh, three big ones. All yours. I don't know how fast you'll go. Been there a lot of years. You know what, mister? That's an Argentinian mate with my football team, Independiente. Bill Dembro being some sort of alter ego of Stephen King, and Stephen King has been criticized for his endings. We sort of incepted that idea in this movie, and Stephen like took it with humor. <laughs> yeah, I missed you too. Yeah! A little flashback there. So Silver in the book and in the movie is a bit of the object that actually helps Bill be brave. Every time he's writing Silver, he beats the devil. So there's a bit of that meaning in the scene. This is a shot that we took straight from chapter one. Memory of Georgie. 
and Dean. Dean is the kid that we saw in the Chinese restaurant. He lives in the house where Bill used to live with his family and with Georgie. And transition. Look at that. Jaden was probably the kid that grew up the least in that period from 2016 to 2018. So we didn't really have to de-age him a lot. Also, his voice was very low on the first movie, so there wasn't really a big difference. I love this scene. Say, say, say something! Why him? Why him? Why him? Why him? Jaden is a very subtle actor, so for him that going so intense was a little bit of a work, but he really pulled it off. In the scene, we learn something that Bill doesn't remember because it was so traumatic that he sort of suppressed it for the rest of his life, which is the confirmation that Pennywise picked Georgie specifically because Bill wasn't there, which is devastating, and the reason why he pushed it down. But Bill's journey is a journey of, of guilt, and it's about to get worse. Hello? I'm still here. We all know that that is not Georgie. But we're playing with emotions here, with the possibility that Georgie is still there. And his emotional memory is just like so strong that he bites it for a second. This was a hard scene to shoot. We did it in two pieces. Everything that is shot from the exterior is on location and everything that is from the inside out is shot on a separate stage. Exhausting scene for James. You can see him struggling and struggling. And he was like in this tiny space. It was so exhausting for him. But again, like uh, James is always game for this kind of things. And he always pushes us to the limit. I hate you! I hate you! Who are you talking to? You hear voices from that sewer, you stay away from it. You hear voices from the sewer? N no, N no, just, just stay away from that sewer. Luke Rossler, amazing actor. This is a great one-on-one -on -one between McAvoy and Luke. Great moment. Kids? And other times, like a... Hey, clown. You listen to me? You listen good. You need to get out of this town. Notice how intense it gets. That's great. This is a great moment. I think it's like one of the most vulnerable moments of the character of Bill. It's a wreck. And out of his mind, he actually asks him to get out of town. Tell his parents, like, make something up. It's ridiculous. I'm supposed to be the festival. I, I gotta go. 
careful. In the book, the kid turns around and says, you can't be careful on a skateboard. But I thought it was a little silly for the movie. And it was like not too relevant. That's my sister on the right. And that's the turtle. You know, for people who crave the turtle, that's the turtle. We see the turtle on the desk and the world on top of it. For people who miss that, writing on the blackboard is the chemical formula of anthrax. And transition. I love this transition. It actually came up on the day. I was trying to figure out how to go to the past. And I did it through a projector, which is an element that was very prominent in chapter one. A little wing to the fans of New Kids on the Block. And that dragon on the screen, I was hoping to make it pay off later. I will tell you about it later. I love this shot. Thank you, Checo, for giving that beautiful light. So this scene was reformulated. We had a different version of this scene, which was in the exterior, and we shot it, and it didn't like really pay off too much. So we decided to make it in a darker place, and that's how the idea of, of having Ben going to his old high school. You okay, new kid? Yeah, no, I'm fine. I guess I'm just worried that we're not all going to be the same after the fight. As long as we can still hang out, who cares? You really mean that? Well, yeah, of course, dummy. You and me. It incarnates in Beverly, which is Ben's weak point, just to make Ben believe that uh, he will never be loved. And that's what he carries for the rest of his life, even though he's a very successful, you know, architect and cool and everything. He still has that thing that he can't shake off. Oh, now. Beverly on fire. I always like the idea of having Beverly, it Beverly, recite the poem that he wrote for her and make a literal nightmare out of it. Winter fire, January embers. My heart burns there too. This wasn't easy to shoot. We were in a very confined space. Uh, of course, we built the interior of that locker with all false angles, so the camera would... Ouch! Kiss me, fat boy. Kiss me, fat boy. 
We shot this scene in several different angles and little sets. So when I was talking about the dragon that he sees on the picture, on the screen projected, I wanted the scene to be Pennywise floating out of the, of the locker. I thought it would be more haunting and, and, and weird. And because it was something that creeped Sven out, so that would become like a bit of a Chinese dragon. extended scene with that janitor has a great moment at the end. Once Ben runs away, we see him staring off screen and he starts smiling. <laughs> a little bit of a extension of evil that reaches all the adults in Derry. Actually, I asked Guillermo del Toro to play that role as a little cameo and he was down for it. He was like so excited, but uh, the very last moment he had scheduling problems and he had to bail. It would have been great. So what did you see out there? Something I wish I hadn't. So what? We just... We, we kill it and then we just forget everything again? I hope so. Don't you? I don't know. I, I guess I want to hold on to the good stuff, you know? Mm. Come on, there must be something from the past that you don't want to forget again. I remember being scared shitless. Jay Ryan, such a good actor. He was brought to my attention by Rich D'Elia, our casting director, who did an incredible job, really. So I had a little pushback, so we asked him to look into his uh, childhood photos, and he actually provided a photo where he actually looks exactly like Jeremy Taylor. <laughs> and that was it. I always saw the resemblance between them, you know, his eyes, just like slanted and the sensibility. I guess. I don't, it's, it's still blurry, but I think the longer we're here, the more I can see it. The more I can see that moment, the, the more I can see Bill. I think. I don't know, do you remember Um, move, move. What's wrong? I'm leaving. What? You, you can't leave, man. We split, we all die. Yeah, I'll take my chances. We're gonna die. Oh, hater. Such a good, excellent comedian, bud. He sure knows how to play drama, man. Rich! I love the second unit shot. Derry Canals Festival and I speak and actually the voice of the beaver is Bill Dean, our sound editor. PJ running into those balloons, that happened in the day. Oh, look at that handsome guy on the left. I wonder who he is. Hello. This shot was longer, we could see uh, the pharmacist doing something behind that wall that was like, I don't know what it was. It was something like masturbating or like slapping, like banging a fish against the counter. It was hard to tell what he was doing, but I love it. Uh, Eddie Kasprak. Mm-hmm, that's me. I remember you. Yeah. <laughs> How's your mom? Oh, uh, 
Uh, well, she died a few years ago. It's very sad. It was from liver cancer. What's that? Just... What's what? That. Joe Bostrick, who played Keen in the first movie, and was all made up to look 27 years <laughs> older. Uh, he did a great job. Cancer. Ah. But it might be. You just stay here. I'll get you something. And here's it, playing with those feelings. Okay. Came here for your stinky breath pills. And Megan Charpentier, who plays Greta. She was Victoria in Mama, and she played Greta in Chapter One. And I also did a pilot for Lock and Key for Joe Hill, in which she plays the lead. Great actress and collaborator. I really enjoy working with her. Wait, what did your dad say? There you go. I hope your dick feels better. Thank you. For the inhaler, not for the penis thing. Mommy. Jack Grazer is amazing. If you see him in the next shot doing this thing <laughs> where he hits the crate, <laughs> that's all him. So amazing. <laughs> Jack grew up quite a bit from the first one to the second one, so we had to like de-age him a little bit digitally. It's very subtle, but he looks like a young Eddie. Mommy! So I wanted to have Eddie be sunk in his worst nightmare, which was uh, actually like the fear of infection and everything that his mom actually imposed into him just to have control of him that overprotection. So this is it. What Aid is doing here is basically creating this hallucination where his mom has been captured and he has to free her from that thing. What the fuck is that? Who is that? I love that scene. Skinny, like the fear inside, you don't know what it is. So, obviously, he's playing with Eddie's deepest fear and eventually confronting him with the thing that he will have to endure the rest of his life, which is being a coward. He is not able to stand up or to save anyone that he loves. Ah! I can't do it! I'm sorry! I can't do it! Javier Botet, again. Great 
Perfect Makeup by Sean Samson. And a little enhanced by Kubica. Kubica is a Spanish VFX house that I've been working with ever since I did Mama. They're great. They're in Barcelona. PJ, come on. I had a great relationship with PJ on set. So fucking smart and funny. Ah. That was added on the additional shooting. I wanted Eddie to just like try to repel the hobo. He sinks his thumb into his eye socket and there's a spring of goo coming out. And this is a very important event in the movie because it's when Eddie not only gets a shitload of vomit in his face to Juice Newton's song, but he also learns that Pennywise is weak, and because all living things must abide by the loss of the shape they inhabit, those are two concepts that will like be put together at the end, and the one who actually brings that information is Eddie on his deathbed at the end. Nothing. I'm fine. <laughs> that was all BJ. Such a great comedy timing. Scared. So am I, Bill. Aren't you? We're all scared. That's what worries me. Because that's what it wants. We can do this, but we have to stick together. This was a tricky one because at the end of this case, we would have to convey that the idealization that Bill has and Beverly have of that past feeling doesn't live anymore. They wouldn't be able to talk about it. It has to be unspoken and only conveyed by performance. So it was tricky, but you know, when you have like actors like McAvoy and Chastain, it's easier. what that skateboard means he just has to confirm the idea of the blood is like implying that there was something coming out of it underneath the skateboard and that's how it happens won't be there for him either and you can see the camera like going handheld suddenly Sort of like reflecting the state of mind of Bill at this moment and Beverly. 
Suddenly everything is unstable and urgent. Fair, I gotta help him. Okay, 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 listen to me. We'll go together. I'm gonna get Richie and, and Ben and we'll There's go. There's no time. I, I can't let it happen again. What happened before, it wasn't your fault. None of it was. I wish that were true, Beth. Bill? Ben? What is this? What happened? Uh, to Bill just leave? I, I couldn't stop him. Everybody's leaving and... It's all right. It's Bill. He'll be back. He'll come, he'll come back. Well, at least, at least I got Richie to stay. Fuck. Oh. Of course, Richie would try to leave. He's been threatened by Pennywise, and this is the worst of his fears, being exposed. That's why he just leaves. Oh, and then the leopard, he threw up all over me. Hey, it's my family. Why don't you come back to Maine? It's your time, Eddie. Classic scare of the mirror. I love the scene. I want her to be stabbed in the face. It's very painful, but uh, it becomes funny. You know, the way that PJ performs it. He's like, <laughs> he's literally getting back into the... He hides himself. After I shot this, I realized that there's something about the scene that I had in the back of my mind, and then I realized what it was. It was in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, and Peter Sellers retreats behind a, a picture that is there in the wall. Uh, I think James Mason is trying to kill him, and he has a gun, and so Peter Sellers knows that he's gonna die, and he has like this weird behavior of like trying to hide himself, as if that would help him at all. And I think that, unconsciously, that's where the whole idea of Eddie going to the bathtub comes from. in my room. Oh. Is it bad? Oh. Not a mortal wound at all. Just went into the sternum. Still alive. Look at James really breaking that bicycle. This scene was much longer in the first edit, but we decided to chop it off to favor the pacing. Where he would go on and on, you know, trying to find the kid, finding the wrong kid. Turns around, it's not him. I love this shot. Thank heavens for the techno grain. Prose was one of the designers in the movie. It's a great talent. He designed those bags. Kid! Hey! Kid! 
This wasn't easy at all. Technically, like shooting a scene like this is a pain in the ass. There's a lot of mirrors, a lot of opportunities to get reflections of the camera everywhere. So we designed the set in a way where we can actually have a camera inside, like this shot where he's pulling and pushing. The camera is pulling and pushing, but also we have a camera on the outside of the set and through two-way mirrors, we actually could see through from the side of the glass where there is no light. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you out of here. And this is a scene I love, of course. It came um, a few days before we start production. I was trying to figure out how this scene would play. So I asked everyone to play along and I, I ordered a squishy head. Later on in these shots, you see Bell's performance is replaced for a couple of frames. Every time he hits the glass, his face is completely flattened. So we basically locked off the camera and we did performance with Bill and then we used the squishy head, which was like rubber. And then we, post-production, we blended. terrible low point for the character of Bill. Not only Pennywise aggravated his guilt trip by targeting the kid that lives in his house, but also basically kills him in front of him. And he can't do anything about it. And at the end of the scene, he just sees himself reflected on the mirror, uh, helpless. So it's pretty rough. Reflecting on the meaning of what I just read, the word leishnat comes up a lot, which means um, to change, to transform, which makes sense, I guess, because today I'm supposed to become a man. It's funny, though. Everyone, I think, has some memories they're prouder of than others. This is a scene that was used in chapter one, but it was repurposed on the second one, so we went back and recreated it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, emotional low point for the characters because we see each of them alone and facing, uh, you know, basically we see the drama of each one of these kids. We see Beverly taking care of dad, even though the abuse. We see Eddie like going back to get his medications after apparently he got rid of them at the end of chapter one. We see Ben in tears, unable to accept that he will be alone and he will never be loved. And we see Richie doing this gesture of expressing his feelings, but in the hiding, making sure that nobody's looking. It's a very sad moment, but it's a window into the kids relapsing and aggravating in their traumas. Those pieces of you, it feels the easiest to lose. Maybe I don't want to forget. Maybe 
if that's what today is all about, forget it, right? Thank you, Stanley. Uh, 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 today I'm supposed to become a man, but I don't, I don't feel any different. I, I, I know I'm a loser. And no matter what, I always fucking will be. That clapping was footage from the first movie. We sneaked it in there. Transition. You should have seen all the background extras running away from the seats just to make that shot possible. <laughs> because they were there at the beginning of the shot and then the camera pans and everyone was like trying to flee away from being in the frame. I love the lighting of this piece. It's a little expressionistic. Chico did a great job you know, using street lights to give the atmosphere to this night sequence. Mike going to his memory of what happened. You know, Mike, who stayed in town, actually is very much aware of what happened to him, unlike the rest of the losers. But I wanted to bring it back and make sure that we know that Pennywise is messing with him. It's messing with his understanding of the events. It was established that Mike's parents died in a, in a fire. But as you can see in the book that Mike is reading, Pennywise wants to basically make him believe that his parents were drug addicts and they provoked the fire and killed a lot of people. Just like your druggy parents. Can you see them yet? Crispy? Like fried fucking... I guess you could say that was long overdue. Get it? Because we're in a library. <laughs> and a new vomit. In pre-production, I kept hearing people that said, do you think we have enough vomits? They're making fun of the fact that there's a lot of throwing up in this movie. I think it's a perfect amount of vomiting. I was talking to Mike. Where's Bill? Bill, throw out the library, where you at? Took a little kid, Mike, you took a little kid right in fucking front of me. No, 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 no. Just, 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 look, just come here to the library, and we can talk about the plan. I'm gonna go kill it. No, no, I don't want any of you. A little more departure from the original story is basically Bill Dembro trying to keep his friends away from a certain death. And part of his guilt is not only that he, because of him, Georgie died, but also uh, he put all his friends in danger. And if you see chapter one, it's very clear that, you know, that all the kids are in danger because they're basically following Bill in his quest to find Georgie alive. 
And this is what this next scene is about. This is a total recreation of a shot on chapter one where young Bill comes to Nebo's house. Just nighttime, that's a difference. But I wanted to recreate it exactly. Even this shot, him coming, the shot behind, it's a bit of a second match. No, no, you guys, no. I just started all this. It's my fault that you're all here. This curse. This fucking thing that's inside you all. It started growing the day that I m made you go down to the barrens because all I cared about was finding... Great performance. George. By James. Now, I'm gonna go in there and I don't know what's gonna happen, but I can't ask you to do this. So this time over, we built the, only the facade of the, of the house. In 2016, we built the whole house. Of course, the interior was a different location, but... All the exterior, we basically built four sides of the house this time over because there was only one scene involved. We decided to build just the entrance and all the parts where actors would interact with it. And the rest is set extension. Richie said it best when we were here last. Did? No want to die? Not that. You're lucky we're not measuring dicks? No. Let's kill this fucking clown. You guys lucky we're not measuring dicks is a joke from the first one, so I'm certainly hoping that the audience remembers that joke because it's funnier when you have that fresh in your mind. How does Richie remember that? It's a mystery. But it's a movie. The interior of Niebold House was shot on the House on Pape Street, the infamous House on Pape Street. It's a great location. It's an abandoned maternity house. It has been abandoned for years. It's great for shooting. Hey, that's the basement, right? What's happening now is like Pennywise knows that when he divides the losers, they're weaker. So he's basically doing something that he tried on the first one, and he can do it easily when the losers are in Nebold House because he can, you know, do all these like divisions with doors closing and stuff. Poor Stanley. still be alive if it wasn't for you, Bill. No. Age for home. 
This scene is very different from the book, and the book Stanley's head doesn't turn into a spider. But I love, love the idea. Look how disgusting that is. Again, Method did a great job there. You gotta be fucking kidding. <laughs> a little bit of a match to one of my favorite movies, and Bill Hader's favorite movies. comes now is a little bit of the struggle of Eddie. It's all about Eddie not being able to help his friends. It's a bit of like a climaxing point in his journey of cowardice that will later be reversed. So this is the critical point for Eddie. He almost gets his best friend killed because he can't do anything about it. He's just paralyzed. Eddie, get the knife! <laughs> We actually rebuilt this on stage based on our difficulties on the first movie shooting on location. Uh, we rebuilt this kitchen. We had like flying walls and stuff so we would get more space for cameras and space for performance actually. It was very stressing, you know, like you see performance, they're all like so intense and Hater is there full. He didn't like that slime at all. You see how dramatic it gets. Georgie's dead. The, the kid's dead. Stan, Stanley's dead. You, you want Richie too? You want Richie too? I don't want you. I don't. I don't. You. Please don't be mad. Bill. That's a low point of Vetti. But at the end, he says something that. Don't be mad at me, Bill. Which is exactly what Georgie said to Bill in his apparition in chapter one. And that calms Bill down a little bit. What a memory, son. All bad. Okay, how the losers get from the basement to the sewers is a mystery, but I really didn't want to waste time on showing them how they get down the well. You know, you have to make decisions when you're, even before shooting things, about the pacing of the movie, things that are considered shoe leather. The sooner you identify shoe leather, the best for everyone. All those things that you shoot that end up deleted, so the sooner you realize what's going to be deleted, the better. So then you don't shoot it at all. One of my favorite shots of the movie, which is the cistern. Losers arriving to the cistern. Now it's been like 27 years, all that 
thing it's not there anymore all that pile of toys came down and and the wagon itself is a bit of a carcass i wanted it to look like the carcass of an animal uh, if you will with all those pillars that look like a rib cage great set we built a pool and we built the set around it to make it look like it's flooded I wanted to come back to this place, this environment, this set piece. It's the last set piece of chapter one. This is where they defeat Pennywise. And the last thing we see is him disintegrating and falling into a hole. There's definitely a place that we should hit in this part of the, of the journey. And now discover a new thing, which is that little door. We established that little door in a photograph on Mike's table before, so we know that he actually got that far. He's been down here, but now what's down there, we don't know. Nobody knows. He never got farther than that. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Mike. Hey, yo. All right. See you down there. Mike, Mike, Mike. Right there, Mike! In the book, in this section of the story, the losers go down to the sewers and the sewers become a cave and suddenly we are in this gigantic gargantuan spaces that are very surrealistic and they're messed with their senses and everything. I wanted to change that. I wanted to keep it more grounded and, and physical in a way for two reasons. One is that you have to, you know, basically pick your battles as you're telling a story in terms of the budget that you're dealing with. Uh, you don't want to spend too much money on a thing that will basically suck all the budget of visual effects and construction of the rest of the movie. And, uh, and the other one, and more important, is that I'm still telling a human drama. And even though they're fighting a supernatural evil force, I want to keep the story from the perspective of these characters. So the moment that we're going to that other side and everything looks, you know, magical and surrealistic, you turn the tone of this movie into something more of a fantasy. Even though, you know, the final set piece in this movie is pretty stylized and big scale, it's nowhere as near as the gargantuan spaces that Stephen King has in the book. So I try to keep it more physical, more grounded, and make use of this very specific space that was uh, established before in the movie, which was the landing site, the place where it landed on Earth millions of years ago. You get through that? It's the only way. This way. It's in here. It's through here. It's tight. We can get through.
where it hit. As you can see on this shot, it's gigantic, but it's gigantic up. <laughs> of course, we have to build part of this set on a soundstage. Of course, you can't get a stage that is the size of five football fields, so I decided to make it in the vertical. So everything that is where the actors are interacting has to be physical. There's set extension when you look up. You have to get creative. It was challenging, but it was a lot of fun. When you look up, later you realize that the top of that cave, which is the entry point of the asteroid where it came to Earth in, is actually looks exactly the same as Pennywise's throat, where the deadlights come from. Uh, remember in chapter one, when Pennywise deadlights Beverly, we see this deep throat, which is all like uh, fanged. There's like uh, dentata situation there where the deadlights come in and uh, we later discover that the throat of Pennywise is actually it mimics its layer and the environment where he lives it's actually a connection between the real world and the macroverse that macroverse is the dimension where it comes from Again, I didn't want to go to the other side and glimpse into the macroverse because I didn't want to make this a fantasy movie. But at least you can see the gateway. So that throat, which is uh, a reflection of the cave, up there is a gateway from the real world to the macroverse. Georgie. Uh, my inhaler. Come on, dude. Something that I wish I had held on to. Uh, this is a page from my yearbook. Only one person signed. I probably should have forgotten it. I couldn't because I kept it in my wallet for 27 years. Uh, this is a token from the Capitol Theater. You brought an actual token? Yeah, man, that's what we were supposed to do, asshole. Do you have any idea how long that's going to take a burn? Yeah, but so is your inhaler, dude. Guys. In the book, the ritual of Chud is a little, it's very crazy, it's very trippy and it can be actually performed. <laughs> it's about like biting the tongue of the glamour. And when both your tongues are entangled, you have to make jokes to each other until one laughs. And that's how you defeat it. I wanted to simplify the ritual, should make it something that the losers could actually believe that they could pull off. So it's still a battle of wills, but in the practice, it's about burning the past with the present as a symbol of defeating your weakness and believing yourself and your friends. And having that strength is what the power of unified belief is all about. And Mike knows this. As I said before, it's the only weapon that these losers have against evil. It's the power of unified belief. It's a battle of wills. The first step was our reunion. The second was the gathering of tokens. 
This is the final step. What the... designed this huge space with the splash, we call it the splash, as a central space where they're executing the ritual that is a bit of a petrified explosion. And when you look up what seems to be a rocky environment, the more you go up, the more organic it gets and the more of a mucose feeling it has. And that's how it slowly fades into something that is more like the throat of Pennywise. So I wanted to generate a space that has enough scale to make it an epic conclusion or an epic struggle with the deadlights, but also that would provide enough space for a final confrontation that includes like running and smashing and, and all this crazy action. Like, is this supposed to be happening? And humor is never off the table, and that's why we created this thing with the balloon. Obviously, the ritual didn't work, and that's when we started doubting about, like, you know, the success of the whole ritual. And we're sooner gonna learn why it didn't work. We spent days on this set. I think it was like 14 days or something like that. It got very physical. There was a lot of running and chasing and jumping and rolling. Of course, for Isaiah, who was a football player, it was much easier. But I'll tell you, at the end of those 14 days, everyone was happy that we were just finished with this. <laughs> tell them why your silly little ritual didn't work. Tell them it's all just, uh, what's the word, it's gazebo. And this is the moment where the deception is revealed. Everybody's a little disappointed, of course, but Mike had to try it because it's the only way that he could think of defeating Pennywise. What actually happened to the poor Great performance by Isaiah Mustafa. Are you fucking kidding me, Mike? You heard him. Fuck. Fuck you, Mikey. I needed something. Anything, anything was for us to remember. Anything for us to believe. Fuck. The deadlights. This is the second half of the deadlights. You see the deadlights at the beginning when they're doing the ritual, they are submissive and they're warm and now they explode and they're like, you know, blue and incredibly loud and bright. And this is my version of the spider. Many people criticize the spider at the end of the book. I always loved the spider, but you know, I wanted to do an original creation 
an original version of the spider. What you see is, you know, a very grotesque, almost like a giant puppet spider version of the spider clown. We were using Bill Skarsgård performance, so we did motion capture to preserve his performance all through. And then we basically translated into a CG puppet that is incredibly realistic, thanks to the guys at Road here. Find a way out. I wanted to basically make a final confrontation that wasn't only like physical, you know, the losers against a giant formidable monster, but also about each of the losers confronting their own fear. And that's how we, you know, basically divide them. Each of them runs into a different tunnel and they have to face their own uh, struggle. It keeps separating them. And this is where we see Beverly basically landing in an environment that has a very deep and dark meaning to her. She falls back into the stall, bathroom stall, where we see where she was bullied when she was young, where she was marginalized and ostracized and humiliated. Damn it! Uh, uh, all right, not scary at all, all right? No, 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 they're, they're, uh, they're, they're flipped. He's fucking with us. Thank you, Jason Ballantyne, my editor, for you know putting all this together in an incredible way. This parallel editing uh, was something that actually wasn't scripted that way. But when we were putting all this third act together, we realized that we needed to jump back and forth, and he did a great job of doing it. Better Ripson. That's a little wing to people who remember chapter one. Betty Ripson was a girl that was uh, hanging in the closet. She was looking for her shoe. And then uh, when the kids are in Nebold house, they open the not scary at all door and they find her like hanging there. Half of her body's there. And I thought it would be funny in a twisted way, of course, to have her lower part of the body just dancing towards them. That's Pennywise's twisted sense of humor. That's a good boy. It's actually super cute. That's a good boy. Hey, baby. Good boy. And of course, the joke with the dog. Which says, I hope it's a puppy. Well, that pays off there. regular scary. Next time.
it just floated off. We thought it would be a great idea to reprise the scene in chapter one where young Bill meets Georgie or the incarnation of Georgie tries to make him feel guilty. Well, this is a, a more aggravated and layered version of that where we find out also that Bill was lying that morning when Georgie went to play by himself. Bill told him that he was sick and the truth is that he wasn't sick. He was pretending because he didn't want to go into the rain. You lied and I died. 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 It happened because of me, Georgie, me. So this is probably the only scene where an adult actor interacts with a younger version of the character. Very appropriate also because it's so much about, you know, basically confronting that kid and in a way making peace with him. And in order to confront that sense of guilt, Bill has to, in a way, kill that notion because the kid version is an incarnation of it. Uh, he has to actually kill that incarnation, in a way kill his past self. just like Lois Lane. Here's Johnny! This is probably one of the most difficult scenes that we had to do. A scene in the bathroom with the blood and everything. Challenging. There was a lot of blood. We shot it in like three different stages, each for a different portion of the scene. Challenging from technical reasons, it was like you know, this huge tank of blood pending on top of the stage. Jessica had to struggle with the blood and also perform at the same time, so it was quite stressing for everyone. Uh, we had to find a spot for three cameras rolling at the same time. The same with Ben and him being buried in that clubhouse slash grave. But it's a very intense parallel action scene. It's very emotional also. You know, there's an escalation there that culminates in both of them simultaneously basically confronting their demon. Sort of at the same time, Beverly defies her own father, defying her own notion of love has been distorted so much and that will eventually kill her so she decides to confront it and fight it back and at the same time Ben steps up to the inner conviction that he will never be loved and in that struggle love surfaces so that power of love basically eventually brings them back together
deserve to die. No. You were the best big brother there ever was. No! We killed our little brother. He loved you. And just because you didn't want to play on a rainy day? And this is Bill fighting the notion of guilt, speaking to himself. In the book, it goes a little unnoticed, but it always resonated. All living things must abide by the laws of the shade they inhabit. It felt like something that was important and that wasn't, uh, probably didn't land hard enough in the story in the book. But I really needed a logic. I really needed something that we could use as a rule. And I picked that up and I used it as a finding. This is something that Mike knows because he heard it before and he basically orchestrates that rule into the fake ritual. If it's true form, it's light. And then all living things must abide by the laws of the shape they inhabit. If we put that light into darkness, we will kill it. The other face of that is that, as Eddie discovers, when it is incarnated in a creature, like for instance, the hobo, whose weapon is in his infectious power, power of disease. But he's not strong, he's weak. So if you submit to the power of infectious and disease, then you're gonna be in trouble. But if you turn around, as Eddie confirms when he's confronted with a leper, grabs his neck and starts squishing, and he realizes that the leper slash hobo is not strong at all. It's a creature that basically abides by the law of the shape it's inhabiting. So it's weak by nature. That is a rule that really pays off in the story. And before he dies, Eddie has this revelation and passes the torch to the rest of the loser. that's a revelation. The losers get the hint and they use that as a new weapon. We have to make it weak. We have to make it incarnate in a physically weak shape. 
And that's when they come up with the idea of making him go through the small passage at the entrance of the cavern. Uh, of course, that doesn't work, but there's other ways to make someone small, as Mike says. <laughs> It's implied that Eddie and Richie have something, but it's never explicit, it's never consummated, actually. It's implied that the love that they have is more than friendship. Exploring the struggles of our characters, we came up with the idea that Richie was actually gay and he was like struggling with sexual identity in terms of being exposed and, and humiliated because of the trauma that he has with that issue. So it felt like a great emotional payoff to have uh, Richie, once we understand what his struggle is, discover that he always had a thing for Eddie that was never explored or even expressed. I thought it was a great emotional uh, payoff for the character of Richie. It doesn't actually flourish until the moment where Eddie dies and we see in Richie's reaction what Eddie meant to him and we see him caress his face. In the book, it's pretty open-ended, and it goes maybe both ways. In the book, Eddie is about to say something. A lot of people think that he's about to say, I love you, but he dies before he even can say I. I thought it was a super bittersweet moment and conclusion of Eddie's life under the light of Richie's love for him. Just a clown. It defines himself as the eater of worlds, but that's an expression of false strength, forced uh, might. It is basically a shapeshifter, deceiving creature 
that is essentially an eater of faith. He feeds on faith. It is not a, a serial killer. He doesn't need to eat flesh. It is a creature that needs to stay alive. And the only way to stay alive is keep killing. In the book, there is an interesting passage where young Bill is thinking to himself, what if it is eating children because that's what we're told that monsters do? This is sort of a deep reflection about belief and the power of belief and the power of faith. It is an eater of faith more than an eater of flesh. Who's more likely to believe in things that don't exist than children? That's why its victims are children. So it is a creature that uses belief to submit you, to divide you, to conquer you, to kill you. But it's also a creature of belief. It is made of belief. If you don't believe in it, it doesn't exist. And this is something that the losers realize. And so at the end, when Mike says, there's another way to make someone small, he's basically invoking that reversed power of belief. And what the losers do when they start calling it names, it's not about bullying. It's about using the power of belief to their profit against it. For the first time, it doesn't shape shift into what he wants to be. For the first time, the losers decide what he's gonna be using that reverse power of belief. And that's how they bring him down. And they said, you're a mimic, you're a headless boy. You're a weak old woman, you're a clown. You're just a clown. You're a clown. Now it believes what they make him believe. And I think it's a great conclusion. It's a journey of understanding the fears, understanding the monster that is fear. Eventually they tell the monster that he has a heart. It never had a heart, but now he believes he has a heart and he lives because he has a heart. And that's how they kill it. They create a heart that can be squished, and when they squished it, it is dead for good. Making someone weak, making someone small, you can see the creature, this big, formidable spider monster, receding in size according to what the losers are saying that he is. And he becomes weaker and dysfunctional and powerless and small. And he ends up being like this helpless creature, which is like this tiny, creepy baby who is shriveling. And then he becomes this shapeless thing, which is actually loses its texture and its substance. That's why I like the idea of him squishing back into the wall. And he's not solid anymore. He's like this substance-less, bland, soft tissue that is starting to basically lose its shape. He's just hurt. We got to get him out of here. He's hurt. Ben. Bill, he's okay. We got to get him out of here. Bev. Richie. 
What? He's dead. We have to go. Come on. Come on, Richie. Gotta go. I always wanted to end this movie on an emotional note. In the book, there's a big destruction of the city. We see Derry falling into these huge sinkholes. Everything floods. For the story in the book, it's great because it, it also has like a very deep emotional payoff. But I really wanted to keep this conclusion very intimate and about the characters and the characters' feelings and emotions. If I made a movie with a big CG destruction of the city, I think it would take away from the more intimate emotional payoff. And also it would have basically sucked half of the, <laughs> the budget for VFX in the movie. I think it was a good choice for several reasons. My favorite scenes in chapter one was in the quarry. It's one of the more emotional moments in chapter one. It's a scene where they adopt Beverly as part of the group. It's a very sweet, emotional scene. Innocence, it's a prominent uh, emotional beat in the first movie. And, and going back to it in the second movie was something that I wanted to do, especially reach that conclusion where so many things reach their closure the kiss at the end. Remember in chapter one, we were playing a little bit with that love triangle between Bill, Bev and Ben, and we saw a very disappointed Ben when Bill and Bev were sharing glances. So having that final kiss in the quarry was important for me. And also having, you know, a bit of closure regarding Eddie and Eddie leaving them they reach like this beautiful, bittersweet conclusion about Eddie. And he actually, in spite of it all, in spite of his uh, neurosis and hypochondria and seeming cowardice, what he was actually doing was taking care of them all. And that's so beautiful. You'd be looking out for us. We always was. Is that right, Richie? One of the things that got me so excited about making chapter two was basically recovering that dialogue between the two timelines and all the opportunities to translate that dialogue into visuals. 
and the transitions are always something that is fascinating to me because you can get poetic <laughs> with it. You can actually use uh, visual language to generate emotions and connect different timelines and characters in a sophisticated, stylist uh, way. So for me, one of the most fun parts of making this movie was working on those transitions, trying to keep, of course, it's challenging because you don't want to repeat the same narrative device or, or the same resource over and over. So it's great, it's fun because it throws you into your own creativity and it's so much of what movies are made of, you know, the magic of telling things that don't exist in images opportunity to transmit abstract thoughts uh, into images and transitions, temporal transitions is something that don't happen in real life. That's why I think it has like this abstract and poetic uh, value that is always fun and challenging to approach. Hey guys. kill me dude you've been gone for 24 straight hours your face is definitely on a milk carton by now also that puke smells worse than your mom's slippers oh shut up richie okay first of all my mom's slippers smell like potpourri asshole no they don't there's two scenes in the movie where all the kids were together one of them was on the clubhouse and the other one was at the end of a movie where they are all reflected in the shop window and I think it was great because, you know, from like behind the camera experience of that was something very special for everyone because we had had like a, such a beautiful experience in the summer of 2016. All of these kids met each other, they became friends, they bonded and they forged a friendship that to this day is still like strong as, as ever. And we all had a great, great, great experience back in the day. So getting back together was very special for everyone. I just finished the first chapter. And I think I actually know where I'm going this time. Good. Say, so can I ask you a question? Sure. Why do you think we're not forgetting? Like, you know, like last time? Maybe because it's dead. Or maybe because we have more we want to remember than we want to forget. I like that one. You decide what you want to do? I'm leaving Derry. Man, I've been in this cell for 27 years. <laughs> Just seeing what it wanted me to. I think it's time I saw the sky for a change. Go get it, Mikey. Oh, did you get the letter? Uh, what letter? You'll know when you see it. What's going on? I just got the mail. We all got one. We wanted to bring a more special closure 
to the story and especially to Stanley's death, which was always like regarded as a sign of cowardice. I wanted to honor the character of Stanley Uris, and that's why we came up with this alternative conclusion where he actually, as he says, takes himself off the board just to make the group succeed. And I think the final words of Stanley are very brave and they're very encouraging for the rest of the, of the losers. And in that sense, for everyone that is watching the movie, it's a beautiful message of life and love. Dear losers, I know what this must seem like, but this isn't a suicide note. You're probably wondering why I did what I did. It's because I knew I was too scared to go back. And if we weren't together, if all of us alive weren't united, I knew we'd all die. So I made the only logical move. Chapter two is the second half of the story in the book. You can't really tell first part without a second part. I always had that in mind. But of course, the technical part of the equation is that there wouldn't be a green light before the first movie was released. I always wanted to make the second part, but it didn't become a reality until the first movie was released and the second movie was greenlit. Be proud. You sleep okay? Yeah. I had a beautiful dream. And if you find someone worth holding on to, never, ever let them go. Follow your own path. For me, meeting Stephen King was something very special. I grew up reading his books. It meant a lot to me when I read it for the first time when I was 14, and then rereading it 30 years later and reinterpreting it, seeing it from a different perspective. And meeting Stephen King, my hero, was something that was very, very special. This has been an incredible adventure. Started five years ago. For me, being able to take this incredible story that I had in my heart for so long and put it on screen. It was very, very special. But regardless of that, having the opportunity to meet this incredible group of people, and I'm talking cast and crew, family was created. We made this movie with a lot of love. And it's funny how it's a story about friendship, childhood, and the power of unified belief. And this movie could have not happened if there wasn't love and we hadn't believed in telling this story. So, you know, the power of unified belief is something that happened in the story, but also behind the camera. Thank you very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed this commentary as much as I enjoyed making it. I'm making the movie. Thank you very much.